Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' podcast on British politics. I'm Sebastian Payne. In our third summer special, we're breaking out of the news cycle to take a look at some of the big policy questions facing the UK. This week, we're looking at housing. The country seems to have an undeniable problem in its housing market. There aren't enough properties being built, many of the pre-existing ones are no longer affordable, and swathes of the social housing stock are in disrepair. I'm delighted to dive into this with Judith Evans, our property correspondent, John Gapper, our chief business commentator, and Sam Bowman, who's executive director of the Adam Smith Institute. Thank you all for joining. So, if you ask anyone, they will tell you the UK is in the depths of a housing crisis. Last year, 168,000 homes were completed in England way below the projected 300,000 needing. Successive governments have tried to grapple with this problem and failed for both political and practical reasons. So why do they not make much progress on this when lots of people keep piping up saying something must be done? We're going to look at where the problem lies and what can be done to solve it. So Judith Evans, let's begin by just taking a wide picture on the UK's housing situation at the moment. Is the problem as bad as I've just painted it? Or are we actually making progress on building more houses to cope with the population growth? I'd say it really is, although with the caveat that there's a pretty severe problem in parts of the country and other parts of the country are experiencing much more reasonable conditions. But if you look at London, the South East and other big urban areas where the jobs growth is really based, you can certainly see it in the numbers, whether it's house price to earnings ratios for first time buyers, whether it's the proportion of younger people's income taken up by rents. And really at the sharp end, you're also seeing an increase in homelessness and people living in temporary accommodation. So I would say that there really is a problem here. And I think we can see various causes, some relating to changes in the structure of the country where the jobs are, others relating to the sources of new housing, because we're relying a lot on private sector house builders. At the moment, if you look at the statistics over time in the past, there have been more coming from public and quasi-public sector sources. Whatever you think the solution is, I think even house builders themselves are saying, come on, guys, we may not be able to fulfil all of the need here. One of the big changes as well is the levels of home ownership have plummeted in the past couple of decades. That's true. And there's quite a bit of debate over whether that is in itself a bad thing. But certainly surveys indicate that people who don't yet own houses are keen to buy. And there's also a massive concentration of housing wealth among the older generations now which isn't really being passed down other than through death and inheritance. People are not downsizing. So we've got a sort of very lopsided distribution of housing wealth there. With John Gapper, we read so much about Generation Rent, which is my generation who apparently doesn't own homes, never going to own homes. And that's because of baby boomers, dare I say it, like you who own all the housing stock and are not selling it and passing it on. And this has created this whole narrative of generational warfare. Do you think there is an inherent unfairness in our housing market at the moment? 
I think there are generational unfairnesses in it which have come about through a set of circumstances. I'm going to say something shocking now, which is that I bought a house in Whitechapel, a large house in Whitechapel in 1995 for £150,000. Presumably that house would now be worth 10 times that amount and would be completely unaffordable to somebody in my situation 20 years later. I think there have been two effects. One which I would say tends to be a bit discounted now is that people didn't want to live in a wine chapel in 1995. They certainly uh, do now. They certainly do now, but when I moved there, you could hear the birds and people would say, oh, why are you living in what they used to call the inner city? And we've seen a long period of 30, 40 years when middle class Families would live in the suburbs, and the centre of cities was really pretty empty, actually, in parts. And that if you were a smart young person of that generation, you realised it was an enormous arbitrage, and you could go and live in places that were actually pretty run down and quite unpleasant, and there was quite a bit of crime, but it was very cheap. And there were people of my generation who feel pretty pleased with themselves now because they bought right at the bottom of the market. But the second effect, which I think is clearly unfair generationally, is we've had a long period of asset price inflation. And as interest rates have fallen and continue to be very, very low, it has simply leveraged up the value of these places. And the only thing I'd say is that I think it's actually a bad situation for both generations. It's clearly much better for my generation because we're sitting in houses that are worth more than a million pounds. But the truth is, that's illiquid wealth. It doesn't make any difference on a practical level whether your house is worth 150 grand or a million if you're sitting in it. And the only circumstances in which that would become liquid wealth, real wealth, is if you sold the house, but then you'd have to live somewhere else. So I don't think for the people who are actually occupying those houses, it is a tremendous practical advantage day to day. But it's clearly a massive disadvantage to people who want to buy those houses of a different generation who have no chance of raising that amount of money. And so you've had these different effects together that I think have created huge tensions and unfairnesses in the housing market. And for people of my generation, we actually feel pretty bad about it. <laughs> it's good to know that. Sam Bowman from the Adam Smith Institute here, I'm assuming you're believing in people having capital and buying houses and those sort of things. And it's amazing how much has changed since the age of Margaret Thatcher's scheme to allow people to buy their own council houses, which was seen as a way the height of the property-owning democracy, people moving from rented to creating their own wealth centres. And there was the help-to-buy scheme under the last government instigated by George Osborne, the then-Chancellor, which really didn't actually do that much to change the home ownership levels. I think the trajectories continued as they are. What kind of things do you think could be seen? Is this a supply or demand thing? Well, I don't actually really care whether people own their own house or not. I think it's a fallacy to think, first of all, that becoming a homeowner somehow turns you into a right-wing free marketeer. <laughs> I wish when you control for things like income and education, those effects seem to go away. To put some numbers on the point that John was making, 20 years ago in the mid-1990s, 56% of under-40s own their own home. Now that number is 36%. So you have a 20 percentage point drop in 20 years, which is very, very significant. What's interesting is that as house prices have risen, rents have not risen. So it does seem to be something that's being driven by the change in expected real interest rates over the kind of lifetimes of people buying houses. 
But I think we have to think of that as two blades of a scissors, because things like cars or other semi-durable goods, obviously houses are very, very durable, so they'll always have some kind of investment value as well as the living value. But things like that tend to not rise in value when interest rates fall, the reason being that the supply increases. If demand for something rises, then usually we expect supply to increase. So I think a lot about Shelter, who do a lot of work on housing. I agree with them on maybe 90% of things, disagree with them on maybe 10%. They focus on issues like land banking and um, speculation. And I recognize that those are issues, and certainly they can be very negative features of the market. But I would look at them more as symptoms rather than of the causes. The cause, I think, really has to be understood as a relatively fixed supply side. Now, the thing that I focused on for a very long time was the Greenbelt. That is this sort of area of land around 14 or 15 of England and Wales cities that effectively prohibits construction of new housing. Politically, I think it's inconceivable that the Conservatives, even Labour actually, committed to protecting the Greenbelt in the manifesto. And I think there was a kind of glimmer of optimism and hope in the run-up to the housing white paper last year that was dashed, unfortunately. The reason being, obviously, that if you own your own home now, you don't want the value to fall. And particularly, you don't want new housing in your area. On a national level, the change in house prices is something that I think people don't necessarily connect with their own lives, but they don't want new construction near them. What we need to do really is square that circle so that new construction benefits existing residents. There is an argument, though, that the situation has reached such a point. If you take your classic Daily Mail reader, who is someone who owns their own house and is a bit concerned about their son or daughter, but actually things have reached such a level now that radical action needs to be taken. Do you think the property-owning people of John generation realise that or not? I think they're beginning to realise it. There's a great debate among people like me, people who want more houses to be built, Do you try and mobilise young people who don't have houses or do you try and do a deal, a kind of grand bargain with existing homeowners? I tend to kind of fall on the latter side. So one of the reasons that we published a paper recently which tried to estimate using fairly robust empirical projections What's the fertility shortfall because of expensive houses? People tend to not have children until they feel secure in their home state. And in the UK, that tends to mean owning your own house. And the later that happens, the later people get to have children. And people basically are not having as many children as they would like if housing was more easily available. So we reckoned it was about 160,000 fewer children having been born in the last 20 years. And that's, I think, quite an evocative thing for maybe an elderly person who would like to have grandchildren and who doesn't like the thought of their kids not being able to start a family. Talking on the policy side, there are a lot of things that we can do that local councils are not really empowered to do at the moment, but the real key is capture the uplift in value that comes when planning is given to a piece of land and let that go to local residents and to local councils rather than to landowners. Just talking as a member of that generation, I think that, of course, as your kids grow up, you start to realise that a lot of this asset price wealth is an illusion because your kids aren't going to be able to afford anything. I can't speak for an entire generation, but I do think that as that generation realises that this is a hugely distorted market and this theoretical wealth that they're sitting on has much less practical value than they thought in a casual way it might do, and their kids are growing up into a market where they cannot afford anything unless they're given it by their parents, which means inherited wealth comes back effectively. I personally think that there's probably a greater receptivity to these arguments than there might have been. Judith, just talk us through what Sam was saying about the green belt, brown belt issue here about building, because this is a particularly thorny thing for the Conservatives. They have a lot of rural MPs who don't want to see their green and pleasant land built on. And there are arguments that actually we are going to have to erode some of the green belt. Is that true or could this all be solved through building on brown belt land? 
Well, certainly a scarcity of land is an issue in London and in the other cities. Greenbelt was designed to be open to review on a local level, so there's no reason theoretically why we shouldn't bring bits in and out of the Greenbelt based on merit or based on the best possible use. Having said that, a shortage of land is not the only problem. What you referred to, brownfield land, a lot of it is being built on in London at the moment, but it tends to have something already on it. And there's even an issue with identifying where it is. There have been various attempts by the London administration and others to even make a list. I think they called it a doomsday book of the brownfield sites because the ownership is very scattered. There's also a related issue around public land. And we still have a lot of land owned by different public bodies in this country. There's, again, successive governments have really been strong on the rhetoric about freeing up that land for housing, but it's been much slower to actually happen than they've suggested. It's quite bureaucratically complex. One thing to add to that, TfL is actually amazingly restrained by the law at the moment in how many houses it can build around things like Crossrail and Crossrail 2. The original railroads were all funded by building railroad into an empty field, building a train station, and then building houses around that and selling the houses, which now had pretty good access to central London. So giving public bodies like TfL more powers to buy up land, to commission house building, and then sell that off as a revenue raiser, I think would be a good thing. But on the brownfield point, it's worth noting, as you say, there's basically no brownfield land in London that's not in use already in some way, and there's almost no brownfield in the southeast. And this is a really important point about housing in general. When we look at house building numbers and brownfield numbers, we have to remember that this is a regional problem. This is a lack of housing in London, Oxford, Cambridge, the southeast. I mean, amazingly, twice as many homes were built in Doncaster and Barnsley as were built in Oxford and Cambridge in the 10 years leading up to 2015. That's not the situation that you want. Just to, again, add some numbers to it, I visited a field in Cambridge last year that cost £50,000 for a hectare. Next door, an identical field was just sold for £2.3 million per hectare, the reason being that that identical field had planning permission for housing development. So even though there are, I think, many other issues, the lack of permission for building is clearly creating huge pent-up demand in the market, and I think the prices reflect that. I think that's very true. I think returning to your point about land value capture, as we might call it from big infrastructure projects, that is something that seems to be gaining some traction in government, given that when we do something like the Olympics or Crossrail, a lot of private landowners effectively get some free money from that. The other point I would make is, of course, the cuts to councils have made it more difficult for them on a practical level, I think, to process planning applications. And interestingly, house builders have actually said, look, if you want to put up the planning fees, we're really happy to pay because we think the gain from just getting this stuff moving would be worthwhile for us. So unusual for a sector to actually applaud a proposal to charge it more money. John, how much is this a general nimbyism in the British attitude? Because it's not just housing, as we've talked about in our last podcast, infrastructure, HS2, airports, whatever it is. We are reaching a point in this country where building things on a mass scale is becoming almost impossible. Part of that is that Britain is not a huge country and there is the space issue. But there's also just this general sense that we're unwilling to really grasp these problems and take them on. You get stuck in the bureaucratic laws that Judith and Sam were both talking about. I'm certainly struck in London, particularly. I live in Hackney in East London, being moved from Whitechapel. And I'm certainly struck by the degree of nimbyism in Hackney and and unwillingness to put up 
towers. Now, I think a lot of that is not even coming from people who live in big houses and fear that the value might fall if somebody put up a tower. A lot of it's coming from a weird mixture of local conservationists, people who just don't like large blocks being put up for all sorts of inchoate reasons. And I find it really highly irritating speaking as somebody who lives in a house in Hackney. Actually, they should just be building more apartment blocks. And there is actually space, not only on public land, but there's a couple of examples I can think of relatively close to my house where things are blocked. And I think it's partly a British mentality, it's partly planning laws, it's partly a set of different interests which come together, and it's always easier to block something than to do something. My favourite example of that is councils trying to block the construction of a new tower block over a local petrol station. This is a really important part of the local heritage, this petrol station. But it's actually a really important point, and I think the aesthetics of housing matters so much for understanding the political dynamics of housing. So this is something that Nicholas Boyd-Smith of Create Streets has addressed, that locals tend to be less opposed to developments they consider to be pretty or beautiful. They hate tower blocks. People kind of instinctively hate tower blocks, even if they're quite nice, if they're luxury flats maybe because it impinges on their view, but actually we don't need to think of density as just being a question of height because some of the most dense housing we have in London are the mansion flats around Victoria, Islington, kind of five-storey, four-storey terrace flats. So one thing that we've proposed, and I think the Conservatives might actually find that they have some political traction with this, is shifting away from very strict design codes and instead going for what the market produces which tends to be maybe kind of tacky to architects kind of neo-georgian kind of pastiches of what we were building about a hundred years ago that sort of thing i think would tend to produce less local opposition and there is a market premium for that kind of thing people just like that kind of housing the other point I would make, though, about nimbyism in cities, I think this is quite a city thing, is that people often see a new block, particularly a new tower block, arriving in their area and then price tags on it, which mean that it would be completely unfeasible for them to contemplate living there. And there's therefore this sense that those blocks come with kind of importing a whole new set of people who are kind of nothing like us. And I feel like the house building industry can be its own worst enemy on this. There's one in my neighbourhood which is literally labelled another luxury housing development. <laughs> I feel like those people could potentially do with a new marketing team. I do think that's quite an important part of the dynamic. Let's rate this out of London very briefly, Judith, because I'm aware that a lot of we talk about is a London problem and it's obviously very acute there because of the living costs of being in the capital. But with regards to the rest of the country and other big cities such as Birmingham and Manchester and what have you, how big of an issue is it there? Is it similar factors to play? I think it is. Some of the numbers are less extreme, but certainly in Manchester, Birmingham, Liverpool, other major cities, Bristol, Cambridge, you have some similar problems coming into play and actually some interesting differences in how different areas are tackling that. Particularly in Birmingham, they have quite an innovative council which has set up its own house builder and which has pushed through some very controversial projects, but they've made it clear that it's all about the numbers for them because there is this level of housing need. Leeds has done a tremendous job as well. Leeds has been very permissive relative to most other cities and coincidentally maybe it's doing very well. One thing that is really important to stress is that there are second-order effects that may be even more important than the first-order effects. The first order effects being expensive housing. The second order effects being it's much harder to move to where you are most economically productive. Now, economists Shea and Moretti did this study in the US where they basically just modelled what would happen if it was as easy to build in San Jose, San Francisco, New York as it is in the median US city. And they reckon that if you did that for, let's say, the top 50 US cities, 
US GDP could be about 14 percentage points higher now than it is otherwise. The reason being this spatial misallocation of labour is a really, really important factor. That, I think, is something that the Conservatives in particular need to understand. This isn't just a question of different voting blocks. This is a question of overall GDP growth. And at a time when they are desperate for policies that don't cost them anything, that will raise economic growth, a more liberal attitude to housing and planning, I think, could be something they're looking for. John, let's turn to social housing now. We've talked a lot about the problems in the private sector here, but we've obviously had the Grenfell Tower tragedy this year, which has really brought to for the UK social housing, both its stock, the attitudes towards maintaining it, and the limited supply of it too. You've written in depth about the Grenfell tragedy and what led to it. What are the problems with the UK social housing? Well, I think if you see a problem of supply and demand in the private sector, you're seeing an even greater issue of constricted supply in public housing. And that basically comes because historically there was a large wave of building social housing, local authority housing after the war. Something like 450,000 homes were being built in the sort of late 60s at the peak. And a lot of that was being built by local authorities. And they've gradually basically come out of the market. Obviously, the pivotal event was the right to buy legislation in 1980. And the Thatcher government's essentially withdrawing of finance from local authorities. And now local authorities build very few homes. And the homes that they are building are effectively done through deals with private developers. And to the extent that social housing is built, it's often built by housing associations And there are questions of their finance and whether or not they need to do essentially large private developments and earmark part of that for social housing and so-called affordable housing. There's really an enormous supply problem, and I just don't think the country has come to terms with that in the past uh, decade or two. It's obviously easier to look at the private market, where a lot of people who read newspapers like the FT are more aware of the problem, whereas when we had Grenfell, I think it really did make people look at this as well and of course there was the whole scandal around that with the management and the refurbishment they'd spent eight million pounds refurbishing the tower block and there's obviously an inquiry beginning so we don't want to prejudice that in any way but there's been questions raised about cladding about gas pipes and i think from the outside world they've often looked at britain and when they saw this it's like well you judge society about how it treats it's poorest, and if this is how you're catering for your poorest, then it's a pretty bad society. Yeah, and constriction in suppliers also had another perverse effect, I think, in local authority housing. And you have this nasty word for a nasty business called residualization, which means that you have very constricted supply of local authority housing, and local authorities have legal requirements to house the homeless, which means that the people who are in the limited supply get poorer and poorer and poorer because there's only a bit and they have to be housed. And so the social mix in local authority housing, which existed to a much greater extent in previous decades, has really been narrowed down. I think it's worth mentioning here some of the specific restrictions on councils when it comes to housing in the sense that they are required to sell off their housing stock to some extent through right to buy but they're not allowed to spend most of the proceeds of that on new housing and even more I would say quite bizarrely they are allowed to borrow money from something called the Public Works Loan Board at very cheap rates to buy commercial property and you're seeing them do that in very large quantities at the moment including councils buying shopping centres across the country from their own patch but at the same time they're not allowed to borrow to build houses which 
people on the ground in some cases desperately need. So there are some contradictions there that I think certainly councils themselves would like to see revisited. And Sam, as well as the need to build more private homes, do you agree that there should be more building from public sector? I tend to not think that. I think maybe as a second best compared to having more low-cost housing built by the private sector. Actually, Tokyo is a pretty good model, and there was a great FT long essay on this last year which pointed out that Tokyo maintains basically the safest buildings in the world. It has some of the youngest housing stock. The average age of a house in Tokyo is 30 years. The way they manage to have very affordable housing, house prices have not risen at all in Tokyo, even as more and more people are moving to Tokyo. The way they've managed to do that is having very, very permissive rules about what's called by-right construction. You can't build over a certain height. You can't do certain things with the land, but otherwise do what you want with it. And that's been quite a success. One of the problems that councils have, I think, is not just borrowing, but how do you actually repay that? Because if it is going to be used as social housing, it isn't going to be the kind of revenue raiser that you want it to be. And I think that Labour, interestingly, really has recognised the problem, but I'm not sure if their solution, which is to have the central government fund the construction of a million new houses, which would add something like you know, £150 billion to the national debt, is a viable one. So I think more important is to think about how do we actually raise that money whether we want to use it for uh, construction of social housing or if by raising it, and my favourite approach is to either auction off development rights or to allow councils to buy land at the market rate, grant themselves planning permission and then sell the land with planning permission attached, which would actually allow them to capture the uplift. Now that would, I think, reduce the cost of developable land so you'd get cheaper housing and it would give councils a huge amount of money. I mean, billions and billions of pounds across the country, particularly where the demand is most, to spend on new infrastructure, to spend on schools, and if need be, to spend on more social housing. Judith, what do you make of the policies of Labour and the Conservatives towards housing? Because as Sam just said, Labour's manifesto promised a huge counter-house building programme, which I'm sure in part was reason they did pretty well in the June general election. The Conservatives keep talking tough about forcing the private sector to do more, and they talk about rebuilding up small to medium-sized builders, because there were a lot of those that got wiped out during the financial crash here. I'd be interested in your take on how that would address these issues, both private and public sector. Yes, it's interesting. I mean, I think the Conservatives have, certainly under the Cameron and Osborne government, were very insistent on the importance of the private sector and on home ownership. And I think Jeremy Corbyn did obviously quite successfully appeal to a lot of younger voters with his promise of a game changer on housing. In terms of the Tories, they've changed their tone and I think they recognise in their housing white paper that you need to approach this on many fronts, not a kind of silver bullet situation. Having said that, the chances of drastic action in the near future seem to be fairly impeded by broader circumstances that I probably don't really need to mention. But it was interesting, I think a lot of people took note of the fact that after the Grenfell Tower fire, Theresa May said something like, for a long time we have not paid enough attention to social housing. I think her use of the phrase social housing for a lot of people in that sector marked a a real change of tone. The point about small and medium-sized house builders... Unfortunately, a lot of those companies did die during the financial crisis and recreating them is no simple matter. There is already a fund that is supposed to help finance them, but I don't think the numbers are really going up very rapidly. So again, we've not really seen anything game-changing there. And finally, John, our last point of discussion here 
Is there a bubble to be concerned about in terms of the housing price market? That Certainly in London, prices have stalled a little bit during the past couple of years and people are quite worried there's going to be something that bursts and then that could have obviously great effects as well. And obviously with low interest rates and cheap credit, that has an impact on it too. Yeah, I think there's always that danger in housing. I mean, one of the weirdnesses of British attitudes to property always seems to me that people will say, oh, I wouldn't buy a stock or share because it's dangerous. I'll just put the money in the bank. But they're perfectly happy to take a leveraged bet on the biggest cyclical market in the world. And one of the advantages of being as old as I am is that I've been through the period of negative equity, which was when house prices did indeed fall quite sharply in London. And friends of mine at the time, this was a long time ago, were stuck with houses that were worth less than they flats, mainly that they were worth less than they paid for them. So it can happen. It might well happen. I maybe, because I've been around a bit, I'm sanguine about it, and I've got a lot of equity in my house. I'm fairly sanguine about it in the sense that people say it's terrible when prices go up, and people say it's terrible when prices go down. But actually, a bit of adjustment in the housing market on the downside is not such a bad thing. And finally, I've got one nice open-ended question to put each of you to finish with, which is if you could each do one thing to help fix the housing market, what would it be? Judith? Oh, you've really put me on the spot here. I would return Grant to housing associations. Controversial. Sam? Any land that's currently being used for industrial intensive farming on the Greenbelt should be freed up for housing development. And finally, John? I'm a bit more optimistic than Sam about the brownfield capacity of cities like London looking around Hackney and bus garages and land which is effectively not being used quite a lot of it in public hands and I think that it should be freed up. And that's it for this episode of FT Politics Thank you very much to John, Judith and Sam for joining. We'll be back for another summer policy special looking at education next week. Until then thanks for listening Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.